Many of you, of course, have been following along, as Drew calls out earlier, following along with the NCAA men's basketball tournament. And, you know, it, it's I, I believe we're close already to setting or at least tying the record for most overtime games in a single tournament. I think the record is six or seven, and it's getting close. Been a lot of really close games, a lot of incredible finishes. Some of you have gotten really into that. Some of you have filled out brackets, and it's just not any good. And so you, you sort of go to that backup bracket that nobody knew about that you adjusted after the first round. And, and you know, so you've gone to that. It really has been an incredible to watch. You know, this time of year, you, you love, if you love college basketball, you love to see some of the underdogs step up and compete with the big boys and even to beat them. And, you know, it's amazing that, much of that ability to compete comes down to the attitude of both teams. If, if you believe about your team that you are good and can win, then you're going to play like you're good and you can win. Now, if you believe about your team that you have no chance in a particular game, you know how you're going to play? As if you have no chance in that particular game. If you believe about your opponent that they're good and worthy of your respect and you should take them seriously and play like you can play because they'll beat you if not. If you believe that about them, guess how you'll play? You'll play that opponent with respect. You'll play that 15 seed, Eastern Kentucky, if you're the two seed and you'll go out and respect them because they can give you a run for your money as Kansas learned. Now, if you, if you believe about your opponent and your attitude is, well, they're no good, they can't beat us, they shouldn't even be on the floor with us, then you'll be really shocked when they beat you. Attitude has so much to do with it. Attitude really, when it comes to these teams, is a reflection on their coaches. And you can see what the coach has been telling them all year long based upon the interviews after the game. If they respected that opponent, you can tell that coach has really beaten that into their heads. If they're just shocked and overwhelmed maybe that they won a game, you can tell that that coach probably just said, look, boys, just give it the best you got. We'll see what happens. But you know, when a team beats a, a favorite and they come out and say, you know what, we knew they were good, but we knew we were good too and we knew we could compete, you can tell that the coach has instilled that in them. It's amazing what attitude can do. Charles Swindoll, a great pastor, one of my favorite preachers, put it this way about attitude. Maybe you've heard this quote before. The longer I live, the more I realize the impact of attitude on life. Attitude to me is more important than facts. It's more important than the past, than education, than money, than circumstances, than failure, than success, than what other people think or say or do. It is more important than appearance, giftedness, or skill. It will make or break a company, a church, a home. The remarkable thing is we have a choice every day regarding the attitude we will embrace for that day. We cannot change our past. We cannot change the fact that people will act in a certain way. We cannot change the inevitable. The only thing we can do is play on the string, the one string we have, and that is our attitude. I am convinced that life is 10% what happens to me and 90% how I respond to it. And so it is with you. We are in charge of our attitudes. And I don't even have to tell you all of that. You know it's true that your attitude determines so much about your life. Attitude affects everything. It affects your work and how you approach it. It affects your life as an individual, our life as a church. It affects your home. A good attitude will help to give you life. 
but you know as well as I do that a bad attitude in you or, or around you will seem to drain the life from you and those who touch it. The importance of attitude is not lost on God. For those of you that came this morning and, and you view God only as some lofty figure way out in the cosmos somewhere, certainly God is above all of us, and he is outside of creation because he created it. But I want you to know that God is extremely practical. He's both and. He's not just way out there. He's not just right here with us. He's both and. He's big enough to see things the way they really are, and yet he's close enough to help us with life as it really is. So the importance of attitude is not lost on God. He understands. He's practical, and so is the Scripture that he gave us. You realize that as a believer in Jesus, when you come to faith in him, you're not called to go live out somewhere in a corner or on a mountain or out in a pasture somewhere and just sing kumbaya and hold hands with a bunch of Christians until Jesus comes back. You realize that? That's not what the Christian life is to be. Now, some folks have assumed that. I just need to get away from as much as possible. No, no, no. God doesn't want you living away from as much as possible. He wants to interact with you on a regular basis and affect your daily life. Why? Because guess what? You're going to go to work this week, or you're going to go to Walmart this week, or you're going to go to the store this week, or you're going to interact with people in your home this week, and your attitude is going to make the difference, won't it? We're called to let Jesus live out his life and fill us up in every part of us, even, and I think maybe especially, in our attitudes. And we often miss that, thinking that, well, I met with God on Sunday, and I guess I'm kind of on, kind of on my own during the rest of the week. I realize that for some of you, that's not based upon the fact that you don't care about God, or that you don't want Him involved in your life, or that you don't love Jesus. That's based upon the fact that maybe there's a little bit of ignorance in saying, well, does God really have anything to say about my daily life? I'm here to tell you this morning, yes, He does. He, he, he desperately wants to be involved, and you desperately need him to be involved in your daily life. So just coming to church on Sunday and saying, well, I guess I'm kind of on my own throughout the rest of the week. That sounded good. I enjoyed singing those songs, and, you know, those kids were nice, and I, I, I guess I'll try to come back next week. There's more than that. God has more for you than just that. You know, the struggle for our own attitudes is seen in the results, isn't it? When we have a, a bad attitude, We as Christians become negative and pessimistic and selfish and isolated. But boy, when we have a positive attitude based upon the truth of who God is and what he's done, then that's how the world gets changed. Your attitude matters in everything that you do, and it's huge. I'll say this, that that having the right and godly kind of attitude isn't just pulling yourself up and giving yourself a little pep talk or maybe comparing yourself to someone else and saying, well, I don't have it as bad as them. What am I complaining about? You ever done that? You know, well, I guess I shouldn't say anything because if I look around the world, people sure have it a whole lot worse than I do. You know how long that motivates you? About 10 seconds. Because then you're going to look at somebody else and, well, they got it better than I do. Goodness, what's what's going on? You realize that, that what we need to look at is not other people. We need to look at the truth from God's Word. We need an anchor. We need an example that was perfect and never changes. We need an attitude leader because here's a universal truth for you this morning. This is what is true across the board in whatever aspect of life. We've talked about sports, whether it's life, sports, church, home, whatever it is. The universal truth is that attitude always reflects leadership. Always. Attitude always reflects leadership. Give yourself a general attitude check right now, and it will reveal who you're really following. If you would, turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. We'll look at the attitude that we are to have based upon our leader. 
you should have the bulletin there in front of you. You can scan the code on the back if you'd like to follow some online notes and add your own. You can email those to yourself. There's some questions there that you can send in some answers, and we'll pray for you. Those are all anonymous. The scripture there is printed for you, and certainly I hope you brought a Bible with you so that you can look at it. Philippians chapter 2, we've been in a series called A Letter from Your Pastor. The, the Apostle Paul, great church leader, great missionary, is writing to a church that he founded about 10 years before he wrote the letter. As he wrote the letter, he was on house arrest, chained to a Roman soldier with a little bit of freedom. He could receive some guests and he could write letters. And, and there was a group of people known as the Philippians. They were from the city of Philippi and they had formed a church there under Paul's leadership. Paul was their founding pastor and 10 years have passed and Paul obviously has gone through a lot and they were concerned about him and so they sent him some gifts and they inquired, how are you doing? And so this letter is in response to those gifts to say thank you and to let them know how things are going for this founding pastor of the church. And along the way, Paul, being the great pastor and missionary that he was, not only does he just give them an update, but he also says, hey, by the way, here's what I'd like for you to do. This is what I'd like to see in your church. Make sure that you keep doing these things. And so that's what we've looked at. So Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, we'll see this morning, pick it up regarding the attitude that this church was to have among itself. Look at verse 5, make your own attitude that of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a slave, taking on the likeness of men. And when he had come as a man in his external form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul talked last week, as we saw in the scripture, he wrote to them about having how to make him happy, about not doing anything selfishly and looking out for other people. And here he gives the ultimate example, the ultimate leader that we are to follow, and he talks about attitude. And so regarding attitude, individual and collective, Paul offers only one thing, and that thing is a person. Paul offers only Jesus. Verse 5, he says, make your own attitude. Some versions say, have this attitude among you that was in him. He just says, look, if you want to understand the right kind of attitude, you don't need to just get your act together. You don't need to just compare yourself to others and say, well, I don't have it as bad as them. You just need to follow Jesus. He doesn't offer a self-help book. Hey, here's a few titles to look at. The next time you go to the bookstore, check these out. Download these on your Kindle. See what you can do. Pull them up on your Kindle app on your iPad. He doesn't tell the folks that. He just says, look to Jesus. And so this morning, I'm not here to tell you anything that Paul didn't say. I'm not here to tell you anything that wasn't inspired by the Holy Spirit for Paul to write. I don't want you walking away with a pep talk and I'm just going to pull myself up this week and I'm going to have a better attitude if it kills me. I just want you to look to Jesus. The leader, the attitude that we need to follow. That's really been the theme of his letter. Paul has told them that his life is Jesus, that Jesus is his life. That's why he exists. That's, That's why he does what he does. Last week we saw in humility, consider others more important than yourselves. Look out for the interests of others. And Paul says this week, the attitude that dictates all that must reflect the attitude of our leader, Jesus Christ. And so just follow Jesus, he says. Look to him. Follow his example. 
And then he shows them this attitude. So I, I just want to give you three main things that Paul is talking about here, things that, that were reflected in the attitude of Jesus and by implication we put into practice in our own lives. So as you work through this, these three things will also be your application today. This isn't some lofty truth. It's going to be extremely practical. I hope that you'll get it right off the bat. I hope you'll understand it. I want you to, to read the Scripture through with me as we walk through it so that the Holy Spirit can speak to you. Don't just listen to me. Three things about the example of Jesus that our attitude must reflect. First of all, humble yourself. What kind of attitude does Paul want for us? What kind of attitude does Jesus exhibit? What kind of attitude is written about here in Philippians well, it's the attitude of Christ, which was first, humble yourself. Verse 5 says, make your own attitude that of Christ Jesus. What was that? First of all, he says, who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Some versions will say something to be grasped. That means something to be counted on to your own gain, something to hold on to really tightly. I'm never going to let go of this because, because if I do, I lose everything. Paul said he existed in the form of God. That word existing there is a past, present, and future kind of word. It's an ongoing thing that never ends. It's not as if Jesus became God when he came to earth or that he did not, he left being God and then maybe picked it back up later on. He always was in nature. It says in the form, existing in the form of God, in nature, in essence, in substance. He is, he was, and he always will be God. You have to understand that. That's one of the core beliefs in the Christian faith that Jesus is God. He's not some just extension of God, that he actually is God. You understand that the deity of Jesus Christ, when you deny that, you've denied Christian faith. He is God. He came from heaven as God, never stopped being God, and came here. But he says, Paul says, did not consider equality, his equalness with God, as something to be used for his own advantage. He was God. He had all that at his disposal, but he refused to use it for himself. Instead of the life of Jesus. Certainly he was in perfect control all the time. But he did not use his own deity to his own personal human advantage. He humbled himself. There's no selfishness no selfish use of what he possessed. He sets aside his rights, and it says in verse 7, he emptied himself. Now, some folks have read that to say, well, he, he emptied himself of being God. That's not the idea. The idea was that he, he emptied and laid down his independent use of his godlike qualities, which means that while he was a man, yes, he was God, but he depended on God's Holy Spirit for empowerment to do his miracles for empowerment to live his life. He never stopped being God, but as a man he gave up the independent use of all of those types of qualities and depended upon his heavenly Father and the Holy Spirit to empower him. He emptied himself. Verse 7 tells us he took on the likeness of a man. When he had come in his external form as a man, he added humanity to his deity. When Jesus came to earth, he took on human nature, not sinful human nature, but human nature. The Bible tells us he was born not like we are, but born of a virgin conceived by the Holy Spirit. He inherited no sinful nature from any of us. Joseph was his adopted father, but was not his biological father, and so Jesus did not inherit the sinful nature of a human. That's a core belief as well. 
Because if he had a sinful nature and he ever sinned, he could not die as a perfect sacrifice for sinful people. He had to be sinless. He had to be perfect. And yet he had to be God because we could not do what he did. He emptied himself. He took on the the form of a person, humbling himself. This is the ultimate picture of humility. Of course, the question then for us is, are we following that kind of example? Are we following his example of not selfishly using who we are and what we have? Some of y'all are incredible. Some. Most of you. Maybe I'll just say all, just so you feel better. All of y'all are incredible. You know, there's so many folks that are here who have such incredible qualities about you. You may be just so proficient at a particular skill. You're so adept at business or at speaking or teaching or whatever it may be. And isn't it tempting to use those skills and what you can do and what you possess and who you are and your magnetic personality? Isn't it tempting to use that for yourself? For me, I face those same temptations, the things that that I find myself I'm, I'm good at. I'm thankful that I have a godly wife who says, you know what, you need to stop. You're arrogant, stop. You know, you're using that for yourself. You're being manipulative. I'm, I'm thankful that I, I can see some of those things. Isn't it tempting to use what we have and who we are for our own advantage and our own advantage exclusively? Jesus was God, and guess whose advantage he lived for? Ours. Jesus waived all of his rights to be treated as anything but a sacrifice for our sins. You know, we, we love our rights. And I'll say this, growing up Christian in America, it's a difficult endeavor sometimes because we get the two confused. We stand on our rights more than we stand on our identity in Jesus. Our rights sometimes drive us, and we're unwilling to lay down our rights as people for the sake of Christ because I'm an American, I hold on to my rights. And some of the rights that we have, that we believe we have, are so subtle, we hold so tightly to them. The right to our opinion, you ever feel entitled to give your opinion? Whether it's asked for or not, it doesn't make any difference. You feel entitled to give your opinion. The right not to be humiliated, you can't do that to me. The right to be appreciated, the right to the things that I really want, the right not to be offended. I love that one in our world today. We believe we have the right not to be offended. Somehow we find that in the Constitution. I'm not sure where that comes from. But here in America, we feel as if we have the right not to be offended. You can't offend me. If you offend me in any way, then you just watch out. I'm about to offend you back. We just offend each other all over the place, claiming that we should never be offended. I think sometimes we as believers think that we have the right to live in peace and be left alone. Read the words of Jesus. In this world, you'll have trouble. Take heart, he said, I've overcome the world. Jesus waved all of his rights, and he just laid it all down. He said, I didn't come for myself. I came for you. The attitude of our leader is to humble yourself. The opposite of that is to assert yourself, to live a life of entitlement. I'm entitled, though, as we learn from Scripture, we learn from humanity. I'm entitled to nothing. You realize that? None of us are entitled to anything. No matter how great you or I are, commitment maybe we need to make today is I I will not justify using the system or using people to my own advantage. I will not live as if I am owed something by everyone. That's a hard thing. 
You know, there's power in humbling yourself and emptying yourself. There's true power in that. You know, nobody knows how to handle a person who doesn't live for themselves. Well, think about it. Are you not? Maybe this is just me. I'll just confess for a while. You all can kind of be my help today. You just not trust people in the world. I don't trust anybody. I mean, I just really struggle with that. Why? Because everybody's got their own agenda, don't they? Okay, what do you want? I'll see you. What's in it for you? I mean, the shoe, other shoe's going to drop at some point. You're doing all this nice stuff. Okay, what do you want? Just let me know. I'll give it to you, and we move on. Isn't that the way we operate with people? Now, come on. You know how powerful it is? You know how unnerving it can be? Nobody knows what to do with somebody who just says, I'm just here to help and to serve you. What do you want? I, honestly, I don't want anything. I'm just here to help and serve. I really do mean that. Now, seriously, what do you want? I really am just here to... It's amazing. People don't know how to handle it. It's so rare. You know, no, no, no one can truly take from a person who's humbled and emptied himself. If you've, if you've poured yourself out and you say, you know what, I don't live for myself anymore, guess what? Nobody can take anything from you. Why? Because you don't possess anything in the first place. People are disarmed by a person who just truly loves them and forgives them, is generous toward them, who refuses to retaliate, who refuses to go on social media and write about that anonymous person who everybody already knows anyway, and you're just looking to build a coalition. Let's just call it what it is. You know, people don't know what to do when you just lead with love and you say, you know what, I love you. Why? Just because I do, because you exist. People don't know what to do when you lead with forgiveness and you say, you know what, that wasn't right what you did, but I forgive you and I love you anyway. People don't know what to do with folks who are just generous, expecting nothing in return. That's Jesus. They didn't know what to do with him, what? So they killed him. They didn't know what to do with him. Our attitude must be to humble ourselves. And I'll say this, this isn't about being a doormat. Jesus was not a doormat. He voluntarily laid himself down. Nobody stepped on him without his permission. Nobody crucified him without his permission. He went to the cross voluntarily. This is not about being a doormat. Well, I guess I just need to keep my mouth shut and not say anything. No, no, Jesus stood for truth. And you look at the problems he had, it was the folks who stood against truth, not with those who didn't know the truth. It's not about being a doormat. It's about the proactive laying down of entitlement and selfish ambition. So first, humble yourself. The very beginning of following Jesus, he told us in Matthew chapter 5, was to be poor in spirit, to humble ourselves before him, coming acknowledging, I have nothing good to offer you. I'm sinful, I'm awful, I'm rotten, I stand under your wrath, justifiably so, and without you, I'm going to hell. That's how we come to Jesus. It's the beginning of following him and of living a godly life after we place our faith in him. Humble yourself. Now, the next two go a lot quicker. Humble yourself first. Secondly, serve others. Jesus existed in the form of God, but emptied himself, taking on the likeness of men. Look at verse 7. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a slave. He came as a man. He became one of us. He identified with us. He had a body and a life just like us. I'll say this based upon that example. You can't reach. If you're hoping to reach and hoping to affect and hoping to have influence on people, you cannot reach people you're unwilling to go to. Can't do it. For some here and maybe for our church collectively, it's time for us to stop waiting for people to come to us and for us to start going 
to them. Now, I say this as individuals. It's real easy to say, well, if that person wants to make things right, if they want my influence, if they want my leadership, I'm right here. They know where I am. I'm not going anywhere. It's real easy for churches to say, well, we got a sign out front. We're on Highway 94. People pass by. If they need us, they know where we are. Guess what? They ain't thinking about us. They're not. Now, we can get down in the mouth about that. We can get discouraged and all that stuff. Or we can say, you know what? Let's just follow the example of Jesus. He left heaven and came to us. Let's get outside the walls and go to them. He identified with us. He came to where we were and what we were doing. And in the midst of our mess, that's where Jesus showed up. And as a man, he took on the the mode of a slave. He didn't come, as he said in Mark chapter 10, to be served, but he came to serve, to give his life. That's his attitude throughout his life and ministry. You realize you can't reach, you can't affect, you can't influence people that you're unwilling to go to or that you're unwilling to serve. That applies at home, parents. You want to have influence over your children. I think we've got to look at the example of Jesus and say, how can I go to them? How can I serve them? You say, hold on, I'm the authority in my home. That's great. Jesus' greatest authority was when he laid it all down and served people. You want to be like Jesus. Don't assert your authority all over the place. Listen, I struggle with this. I am a perfectionist. Mark and I were just talking about this a few minutes ago. I'm a perfect. I'll give myself away real quick. I'll just I'll give myself away. When I walked in this morning, this page was like this. It drove me nuts. So I'm sitting over here. Mark and I start talking. Mark and I are a little bit alike in this in this respect. We start talking about that page. I said, I said, Mark, I'm gonna fix it. I promise I'm gonna fix it. So so if you noticed, I didn't walk up this way. I walked over here, and some of you saw it, and I went kind of like this, <clears throat> just so that I'd feel better that things were all in order. Now, listen, that sounds crazy. Some of you relate to that. Some of you are like, all right, you know, somebody else in the world. Listen, most of us are probably like that. We just don't like to admit it because people think you're crazy. you got a crazy pastor, and that's okay. There are other crazy church members, and we'll all just be crazy together. And that, but listen, you know where that, that leads to? That leads to trying to make sure that everything is perfect all the time, that everything is exactly the way I want it to be. When something gets out of line in my home, the church, my life, I don't respond well. Because it's out of line. It's not the way it's supposed to be. And I begin to assert my authority instead of serving and saying, you know what, let me go to this person. Let me help them. Yeah, the page is messed up. They're a little bit off today, but let me figure out why, what's going on. Instead, I just fix the problem. It's hard to serve people. Jesus came as a slave, as a servant. In his service, we see in the compassion that he had on the multitudes. He walks up on all these people. Now, let's be honest. If that many people wanted something from you every day, eventually they'd get on your nerves. Please go away. Leave me alone. I just gave you food yesterday. Stop asking. I just healed your mom. I raised your brother from the dead. What more do you want? I mean, at some point, would you, would you not just say, folks, look, I, yeah, I got a headache. I mean, seriously, I'm taking a week off. Jesus walks up on the multitudes, and he doesn't roll his eyes and whisper to his disciples, here they are again. 
You know, the same old, see that guy over there? The same old people keep coming back for more. You know what he does? It's, he says he looks out on them and, and he has compassion. Why? Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Because he loved them. He goes on to heal them and to teach them and to lead them and, and feed them and take care of all of their needs. And then we see in John chapter 13 with his disciples, and you know, these guys were something. They were supposed to really understand him and love him and follow him around. And yet as they walked to Jerusalem for the crucifixion, guess what they're talking about? Who's the greatest? Who's the greatest disciple? Well, look at me. James and John, we're the sons of thunder, he called us. Peter, James, and John, we got to go up on the mountain with him. And we saw Moses and Elijah. Man, we're something. They're all arguing about who's the greatest. Jesus walks into the room there for their last time together and And he knows all this stuff. And the Bible tells in John 13 that he had been given all the power in the world. He could have done anything he wanted to do in that moment. He could have just told them all to shut up and sit down and let me tell you a few things. You know what he does instead? He does what no even Hebrew slave could have been asked to do. He takes off his outer garment. He wraps a towel around his waist. He gets a basin of water and he washes all their feet. They look at him in astonishment. Why? Because only slaves and even Hebrew slaves could not be asked to do that. And he just looks at him and he says, you you understand? (laughs) You understand what leadership? You understand why I came? Do you get it? And he says, this is what I want you to be about with people. We, We don't follow a Savior who hasn't already done it and been down the road or calls us to do something that he himself has not done and cannot empower us to do. Jesus served people. I wonder for us, are we serving people or are we just using them? Do we treat people as just objects? Do we dehumanize them? What can you do for me? Is it just competition, a transaction? You do for me, I'll do for you. How do we treat our kids? How do we treat our family members? How do we treat people we work with? Are we serving them or are we just using them for our own advantage? Jesus came to serve. Check your heart this morning. The heart of Jesus is to serve, to sacrifice, and to give. Humble yourself, serve others, and thirdly, obey your heavenly Father. This is what Jesus did. Look at verse 8. He humbled himself by what? Becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. His humility was displayed by his ultimate obedience to his heavenly Father. He obeyed to the point of death, voluntarily submitting himself to the will of God the Father, completely submitted to the heavenly Father's plan, even if it cost him his life. This was no ordinary death. This was no humane execution, as we might know in our world today. This was a death that not only was extremely painful but was humiliating and was not even mentioned in polite Roman society. The upper crust didn't even talk about crosses because that was for the lowest of the low. Don't even mention that. In fact, Roman citizens could not even be executed by crucifixion. This was for outcasts and and people who were outside of the Roman Empire. And according to Old Testament Scripture, Anyone hung on a tree is under a curse from God. The Jews knew this was a curse from God. That's the kind of death that Jesus died. You know, there are many people who are willing to obey God 
so long as it doesn't cost them anything. There are lots of professing Christians who say, well, yeah, I love the Lord. But when the stakes are raised, when it might actually cost something, there might actually be a sacrifice involved, eh, I don't know about that. I'm not sure God is calling me to that. Maybe I should just sort of skirt around the side of that. But the person who is truly following Jesus, who has his attitude, doesn't avoid sacrifice, but embraces it. That person lives for the glory of God and the goodness of others, even if there is a cost. You know those kind of people. There are lots of folks here like that. Paul's hope for the Philippian church was that they all together, certainly individually, but all together, that would be what they did. They'd simply humble themselves, serve others, obey their heavenly father, not to be doing their own thing, not to be people of self-determination, obeying God when it's convenient or popular or beneficial for you. If that's your approach to the Lord, you can be sure this morning that if your approach is, Lord, I'll obey you, I'll love you when it's convenient or popular or beneficial to me, you can be sure you're not truly following Jesus. You're following some idea maybe that you think of Jesus, but not really him. The attitude of Jesus is based upon what he knew the Father wanted him to do, what he knew would benefit others. And then we see at the end of this, it was based upon what he knew awaited him. Look at verse 9. For this reason God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus looked ahead, and as Hebrews tells us, the joy that was set before him propelled him to continue to be obedient, to lay down his life. And and the writer of Hebrews tells us that's who we fix our eyes on. There's something powerful God does through our obedience. There's the promise and the hope of reward forever in heaven for those who obey the Lord. What we see here is ultimately the good news of Jesus in this passage. We see that he left heaven, that he came and he lived a a perfect life because we could not, that he voluntarily died in our place for our sin, that he was raised again to to promise eternal life to all who will believe in him. And one day he's coming back again. The Bible tells us here that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. When it says every, it means every. It means all, total, everybody. There are some who will bow in absolute joy and worship and adoration, and praise to the Lord. And we'll say, I'm so glad that I get to bow here before you. There are others who will bow only because they're forced to. It will be the last thing they do before they are ushered off into eternal punishment, separated from God, in what the Bible calls hell. The choice is not made then, but now. The decision is not made then, but now. What will you do with Jesus now? He says that he is the only name, the only way to God the Father. What will you do with him now? Don't wait. Don't hope that the good will outweigh the bad. Guess what? It won't. Only Jesus was good. None of us are, which is why we need him. The resulting question from all of this 
for us, for you, for me, is to what leader do you and do we bow? We're bowing to some leader. Our attitude reflects that. Our lives reflect that. Who are you really following? Maybe this morning you say, God has hit me between the eyes and I realize it's time to repent, to confess my sin to him and maybe even to somebody else. And it's maybe just about your attitude. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's a whole life kind of thing. And you say, you know what? I need God's forgiveness because I'm a sinner. And today I recognize that. And I need him in my life. And I want Jesus to save me. I want Jesus to turn my life around. I realize I'm not truly following him. Maybe for you it's time to repent. Maybe it's time for an attitude adjustment. Maybe it's time for total surrender to the Lord. We're going to close in just a moment with a song. And we're going to do just a, a little bit different. We'll sing through a couple of times on one, and we're going to switch to another one. You okay with that? But I want you to know that as you sing, I hope that you'll take opportunity to come if you need to and to kneel and pray, to come and ask for prayer. I'll be down here. We'll have a deacon or two. We'll be standing down here to receive and just to pray for you if you need it. But this morning, maybe it's time to repent to turn from your sin, turn to Jesus and have his attitude. Humble yourself, serve others, obey your heavenly father. Let's bow for prayer. Our Lord, we thank you for loving us through all of our imperfections, through all of our sin, through the mess that we've made even of our lives. We look to you, Lord Jesus, this morning. We thank you that you humbled yourself, that you came to serve, and that you were obedient to death so that we might live. We pray that you would fill us up with just that. As individuals and as a church, Lord, make us humble, make us servants, make us obedient to you. As we sing this morning, as we sing to the wonderful name of Jesus, Let us have that as our anthem this week. Lead us, Lord. May our attitude reflect you in all that we do. We pray in Jesus' name.